Good morning, everybody. It's really good to see you all and uh, so many new people around the life of the church in this season. We'd love to connect with you if this is your first Sunday. Love to say hey, uh, find out how we might connect you uh, to what's going on around the life of our church here in Belfast. Um, as uh, Thomas has already said, we kicked off a new series. We're going to be in it over the next kind of seven or eight weeks. We're reading through the seven letters to the seven churches in the first couple of chapters of the book of Revelation. And uh, today we're reading from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. If you've got a Bible on you, why don't you grab it now? If not, uh, the words will appear behind me. And uh, if you're joining us at home as well, I just really encourage you to grab a Bible, have it in front of you today or on your phone. Maybe a bit less your phone because you're definitely going to get distracted by WhatsApp and whatever else is going on in the world this morning. But grab a Bible. We're reading today from Revelation 2, and this is God's Word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary yet. I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And we thank God for his word that still speaks to us today. So this is week two of a series in Revelation. And last week we explored um, John's intro to the book in Revelation chapter one. John wrote Revelation. We think it's the Apostle John, though there's still a little bit of uncertainty about that, but most kind of scholars and commentators, most people generally think that it's John who wrote the book. And we were discovering that he wanted to say some things to all of the church before he got into writing letters to each of these seven churches. So there were a number of things last week he wanted to say to them all, challenging us before we get to thinking about what kind of church we are going to be, to think about what kind of Jesus has the victory at the end. We just sung it in that song forever, right? All that about overcoming victory, the Lamb is overcome. That is revelation in a nutshell. So we've got this dazzling, astonishing picture that terrifies John, but the reminder and the encouragement that Jesus is way more than the comfortable image of him that we construct for ourselves, and also he is in our midst. And that was kind of the crux of our intro. If you missed last week, that's it in about 60 seconds, right? But what do we do with a book like Revelation, right? That's the question. What do, we, what do we do with this text? As Thomas has kind of alluded in the intro, some of us just like shy away from it, don't read it, don't go there. It's too complicated, it's too weird. I'd rather not think about it. I'll just leave that to somebody else to do. I'll just kind of work with the Gospels and maybe Paul's letters, Revelation. Don't know, it's a bit, it's a bit nuts, right? And in my ongoing series of conversations with my window cleaner, right? If you've been with us before, you'll know that uh, my window cleaner is a born-again Christian and he loves to tell everything 
everyone about Jesus, right? Including me. I still think he's trying to evangelize me, even though he knows that I lead a church, right? But you know those sorts of people that when you tell them you're a Christian, they want to find out, like, but are you really saved, right? Like, really saved. Uh, And he's that sort of guy, right? And in my ongoing conversations with my window cleaner, right before Christmas, we're kind of talking. And uh, amongst other things, we're kind of talking about Christmas and how it's going to be and all that sort of stuff. He says, well, did you take a vaccine? And I'm like, yes, I did, as it happens. I'm double vaxxed. And he's like, oh, you serious? And I'm like, yes. And he's like, you're not worried about, you know, the mark? And I'm like, the what? Pardon? And he's like, you know, Bill Gates, the mark of the beast, all that sort of stuff. And I'm just like, what are you talking about? You mentalist, right? To which he's just like, well... I'll be at Pounds, please. And that was kind of the end of our conversation, right? You know, just drops in these kind of big ethereal type questions and then asks for his eight pounds for cleaning the windows around the house, right? And we're laughing, right? But throughout time, the book of Revelation has often been used for a number of things, right? Normally, probably three things kind of more than anything else. And the first of them is just that, the mark of the beast is one of the things people have tried to use this text for. People have used some of the imagery, particularly in Revelation 13, to suggest that different things are the mark of the beast. Right now, vaccines is one of those things. It's also been different kinds of kind of like IT-based implants. You know, there's like offices in Sweden where I mean, it all sounds a bit extreme, right? In school, we had like a card, but in Sweden, they've decided, I know, get an implant in your arm so that you can like access the photocopier. What a ridiculous thing to do, right? But, but those have been used in time, like implant type things, tattoos, right? All sorts of things, the mark of the beast. Alternatively, very often uh, throughout time, people have used Revelation to try and kind of figure out who the Antichrist is, right? Or to give a title to somebody who already exists as the Antichrist. So Nero, the Russian Tsar, Peter the Great, Mussolini, the Italian kind of fascist dictator, they were all labeled the Antichrist at points along the way. Nowadays, it's just nearly always a US president, right? If you want to know who it is, there'll always be somebody saying it's President X, Y, and Z is the Antichrist, right? So it's a president these days. But probably most of all of the kind of misuses of this book, people have used Revelation to try and predict the end. Doomsday, the rapture, the end, all of that sort of stuff. As my window cleaner reminded me on his way back to the van, right, he left me with this gem. As he walked, he's like, well, not to worry anyway, the end's coming soon, right? As he's just like casually getting into his van. And it goes on today. There's a whole community of people in the world called preppers who are committed to trying to be prepared for the end times, amongst other things. And Christians are very much part of that group of people. On Amazon right now, for the very reasonable price of £5.47, by notable author Zion Prepper, you can buy the Christian Prepper's handbook, right? And on the back of that, you will find this blurb. Christian Preppers prepare for unknown circumstances such as economic collapse, natural events, man-made catastrophes, and even the end of the world. Christian Preppers find peace and peace of mind knowing that they have the Bible That's okay, guys. They've got the Bible. Food, water. I mean, there's a lot of guns here. Rifles, pistols, and ammunition. Shelter, heat, energy, and the experience to survive. Christian preppers, right? But is that all that Revelation is for, right? Is it just for the tip-off, 
so that we can get prepared for the end, right? Is that what it's for? Or is there more going on with this book? Well, last week we learned that Revelation is an apocalypse, which is a kind of book. It's actually three kinds of book in one. It's an apocalypse, a prophecy, and a letter. And it's written not to us, but for us. And it's the Bible's picture of one day. That line, the Lamb has overcome, right? It's the Bible's picture of one day, everything will be different. One day we will see him as he is. One day we will be as we truly are. It's the Bible's picture of one day. And the whole book finds its whole point in the reality of Jesus' victory and his overcoming, which should stir us to overcoming pain, challenges, disorientation of the world in which we live right now. That's the whole point of this book, which admittedly is slightly bizarre from time to time. It's written to stir us in our hearts. It's as if John would write again and again, don't give up, don't give in, because in the end, Jesus wins. It's not written to tip us off so we can get ahead of the inevitable cues on the day of the rapture for loo roll and baked beans in Tesco, right? That's not what it's for. It's written to stir us in our hearts for what is to come so that we live with changed lives now. Michael J. Gorman has written a really great book called Reading Revelation Responsibly. If you're looking for something maybe to help steer some of the conversation while we're doing this series, it's an incredible book. It's only about 200 pages long. He writes really easily to read. He deals with it in kind of big blocks. Uh, and it's a, it's a cracker book, right? And Michael J. Gorman, he writes this. Revelation is above all a community-forming document intended to shape communities of believers in Jesus as the Lamb of God into more faithful and mission communities of uncivil worship and witness. The primary agenda of John the Seer is to increase the covenant faithfulness in the church universal then and now to form victorious communities, communities that do conquer and will conquer. And by conquer, revelation means remaining faithful even to death in order to experience glorious everlasting life with God, the Lamb, and all the redeemed in God's new heaven and earth. What an incredible vision. That's what it's for. And so to what comes next, right? And what comes next is the whole point of the series, those seven letters to seven churches, where in a sense we get to just listen in to what God had to say to these churches in specific cities at specific times. These were real communities of people in real places experiencing real stuff. And God writes to them. And it's like we get to listen in. They're not to us but they're for us. And he's talking about the future church. And there's this general shape to all of them, right? We're getting into the first one this week, but because we're going to be going through seven of them, they all generally do the same thing, right? They all have an introduction where John describes uh, Jesus with one of the features that he saw in that first chapter of Revelation where that picture was dazzling, you know, bronze feet, glowing eyes, a sword coming out of his mouth, all sorts of features. And he describes Jesus with one of those in the intro towards each church. Then he has to say to them what Jesus has to say. There are things he wants to affirm firm and there's things he wants to critique in the different churches and then finally he closes all of them with the same line to the one who conquers da, 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 da. it's that same message the lamb that overcomes that we might be people who overcome they all look like that 
This week we're reading John's letter uh, to the church in Ephesus. This is the first church in the series. What does Jesus say? What's his picture of the future church? And how does it speak to us as we listen in today? Well, there's three things today. And the first of those is that we might see, we might experience a knowing. The first of these is a knowing. We're in uh, the full swing of the five-year-old girl bad moods right now. It is a terrifying thing, particularly when you hear your own words right back at you, right? But there's one kind of phrase which our daughter kind of frequently uses right now, which is it's just like mainstay of her lingo, and it's this, you don't even know, right? Oh, towards anything, like, Elle, can you come for dinner? Can you put that away? Dad, you don't even know. And I'm like, well, no, no, I do know. I do know what's going on, right? But you don't even know. Dropped all over the place, all the time at the minute, right? Which is usually, as, as they say, flung back at us when we try to stop her from doing something that she wants to do. We don't know, obviously. However, there are a few things in life that are as infuriating and painful as the feeling of being misunderstood, isn't there? There's a few things in life that are as painful as feeling misunderstood. Like, you just don't get me, do you? Usually it comes out at times like when we try to give and receive gifts. I'm a gift giver, right? And I really know if you don't know me by the gift that you give me, right? Gifts. Or we try to plan a date. Or we try to, even worse, when somebody gives you an intro, like you get invited to do something and somebody gives you an intro and you're like, they really, really don't know me, right? Do you even know me? Or do you just know about me? But that can't be said here of Jesus and his church in Ephesus. Ephesus was an astonishing place. It was vast, okay? The population in the first century was about a quarter of a million people. The temple in Artemis, which sat at the very center of the city, it was one of the seven wonders of the world uh, and one of the true proper cities of the time. It was a cultural and architectural kind of centerpiece of the ancient world. One commentator titles it the vanity fair of the ancient world. Like, you know the way people will say things like concrete jungle, where dreams are made of. I'm not going to sing it, right? There's nothing you can't do. These streets will make you feel brand new. These lights will inspire you, right? They never write things like that about Donna Gaudet, do they, right? They write stuff like that about places like New York because you walk into New York and the first time you kind of come out of the subway station, you look up, it's just like, oh my goodness, look at this place. Even London to some extent, Paris, major cities of the world. You arrive and you're just like astonished at the scale and everything that goes to make this place the way it is. And Ephesus was that kind of place. That sort of place that can captivate you if you let it the sort of place that will capture your heart, the sort of place that will steer you and will lead you if you let it, the sort of place that would make you go after the sorts of things that it cares about really very easily. I mean, for goodness sake, in this particular city, the temple of the goddess Diana was the single biggest feature of the entire city. would make you go after worshipping her. would make you go after sex and money and all of the stuff that was important to that particular city at that particular time. And it's to a church in a city like this that Jesus says what he has to say. And it turns out that they don't get lost in the city in that particular way. John writes this, and we read, 
These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. It's that Jesus that John talked about last week, the one with bronze feet, right? You remember that bit? The one with bronze feet who walked among the lampstands. The lampstands, as we found out last week, are the churches. The seven lampstands are these seven churches. So this Jesus with bronzed feet, this dazzling image that walks among the seven churches is the same one that he pictures right now, except last week all we got that he was in their midst. This week what we get is that he sees them and he says, I know. I know. He's not just walking among them. He knows them. Twice or three times, depending on your translation, in just two verses, Jesus says, I know. I know how you persevered. I know of your insight and your belief. I know how you've had to endure. I know. And it's the Greek word oida. Uh, which means full and exact knowledge retained from absolute clearness of vision. In other words, Jesus couldn't have seen them and known them any more clearly than he did. And speaking to you today, member of that future church, Jesus would say to you today that he couldn't see you, really see you any more clearly than he does. And it got me thinking, what does Jesus see when he looks at this church? When he looks here, when he looks around, what does he see? Because he sees more clearly than we ever could. And what does he see when he looks at us? I, like so many people, had this moment as kind of coronavirus took over and we moved through lockdowns in the last number of years where all of a sudden it was like I got this new pair of eyes to see the church in ways that maybe I had never seen it before, right? For how we'd seen and how we'd been the church. All of a sudden I started seeing things differently than maybe I did. Like I can't believe I ever cared about production and lights and all of that trash like why was that such a big deal at some point in my life that this place would look so very good I can't believe I ever cared so much about set lists and new songs and setups right that you would go to a church and be like well I just didn't really like the worship today the songs you know they played too much Bethel or like they didn't play enough Bethel or whatever way you know it is that it works for you right I can't believe that I ever cared about that went through lockdowns all I wanted to be I would have sung any song to be in a room with people lifting Jesus name. I can't believe that people ever chose to not get into small group communities, gathering in homes to open God's word. Whenever for years now, we haven't freely, really been able to, to know and to be known as part of a community. And on and on and on. And if we all of a sudden got eyes that saw like that, and I know lots of people did through that season, so aspects of their lives, aspects of church life with a new pair of eyes, what does Jesus see when he looks at us? And when he looks at you and I, not just us corporately, but when he looks at us individually and personally, our failure, our motivations, our heart, our passions, our longings, us as we really are, I know. 
And when he looks at us and he sees our disappointments and our doubts, our persevering, our enduring, our suffering, it's like that look sometimes you get from somebody. Uh, We get whenever they've been through, they look at you and they've been through what you're going through and they just know to look at you. And when they say, I know, some part of you knows that they really truly do know. Jesus looked at the church in Ephesus the same way he looks at us today. And the first thing he says is, I know. Because we're great at being in a room, aren't we, most of us? But most of us are also really rubbish at being present, aren't we? It's like that thing you get, you know, where people will say, oh, we watched this movie on Friday night. It's incredible, right? 4.5 out of 5 stars. And then it turns out that actually they spent the entire time watching the film whilst also on their phone. How is that possible? 4.5 stars, right? Um, I mean, how could you possibly pay full attention to it while you sat on your phone the whole way through? And like how much of our life is lived with a desire to do and be things just to document them rather than to be present in them. But not Jesus. He isn't just there. He isn't just among them. He isn't just in their midst. He knows. He sees you. Because every opportunity to see, I mean really see, is an opportunity to know us. They were suffering, persevering, and enduring. And Jesus first wanted them to know he wasn't just there, but he understood. Eugene Peterson writes this, Perseverance is not the result of our determination. It is the result of God's faithfulness. We survive in the way of faith, not because we have extraordinary stamina, but because God is righteous, because God sticks with us. Christian discipleship is a process of paying more and more attention to God's righteousness and less and less attention to our own, finding the meaning of our lives not by probing our moods and motives and morals, but by believing in God's will and purposes, making a map of the faithfulness of God, not charting the rise and fall of our enthusiasms. It is out of such a reality that we acquire perseverance. Knowing leads us to perseverance. He is faithful. He is in our midst. He knows us. Might that lead us to be the sorts of people who persevere? The first feature of the church in Ephesus was Jesus knowing. But the second was that when he looked, he found a church for whom habit had become greater than love. He found a church for whom habit was greater than love. John writes on, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. I am not a primary school teacher But I am, however, married to one and married to one long enough to have done my fair share of laminating, right? I'm not an expert laminator. Uh, The PGCE was a rough time in our lives. Anyway, I've done my fair share of laminating. I've even done a little bit of marking. I'm sorry if I ever marked your child's work. It would not have been kind comments under it, right? Darren, this is pathetic. What are you doing with your life, right? It's not up to scratch, right? I've done some laminating. I've done some marking. And along the way, I have picked up a little bit of primary school teacher lingo, right? So you've got your blending, your phonics, SEN, show and tell. Every day's a school day. And one of my personal favorites, two smiles and a wish, right? 
If you don't know what two smiles and a wish is, it is exactly what it sounds like, right? Teachers will often say this because when they give feedback to kids, it means that they say two nice things before they say the thing that could be better, right? And even then, they don't say it as strongly as they possibly should, right? It's rubbish, Darren. Please learn to spell. Stop wiping your bogeys on your workbook, right? Two smiles and a wish. And it happens in primary school, but also if we're honest, it happens all the way throughout our adult life as well, doesn't it? High likelihood that you got dumped via the two smiles and a wish policy, right? Where somebody told you all the things they liked about you, and then inevitably they got to, but, and then you know what's coming, right? I am about to get dumped or not get the job at the interview, right? And you know it's always coming when they say things that are too nice about you, right? You know there's a but coming. And in lots of ways, you could say that that's what's going on here in this part of the passage. Because Jesus first commands the things that the Ephesian church are doing well, the good things about them as a church, right? There's no particular magic in terms of interpretation with these, right? They are exactly what they sound like. He commands their good work and their perseverance, their patient endurance and toil, and how soundly their doctrine or their belief had been in not believing others who were seeking to lead them astray. He commands these three things. And the thing is, when we know, because we've read that next part of the passage, that there's a but coming, and it happens to be a big one, the temptation is to kind of write these things off as not that important, right? When you know that there's something coming and it's really important, the temptation is to say, well, these things mustn't be important. These are steady, dependable, solid things, and often we'd rather be anything but the steady type, right? Steady types are friend's own material, right? So we don't want to be steady, be anything but steady, right? These are steady things. But here's the thing. These aren't things to be sneered at or taken lightly because Jesus commands them. And should we not seek to be the sorts of things that Jesus commands? He commands them for being these things. And the reality is there are people in this room today who are and have been those things. There are people here today who have made it, who've just endured the last two years following Jesus. It's been hard at times. There's been days where you haven't felt like it, but you've endured. You have followed him through whatever the last couple of years of your life has looked like. There are people in the room who've stuck it out through difficult times. You've lost people. Your health hasn't been good. Life hasn't worked out the way you thought it would. Disappointment, rejection. You have made it through that. You've put up with difficult people. You've given your all to do what you think Jesus has you for. You've believed even when it has cost you, even when it's been hard, even when others around you haven't. And like Jesus did then, I want to commend that in you today. If that is you, Jesus would say, well done. Well done for being the sorts of people who would persevere, who would endure, who would get your head down and work hard for him, who would hold on. But then comes the but. And the problem is, it's huge. It says in verse four, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. See, here's the thing. The Ephesian church had elevated truth but they had lost their love. Habit had become greater than love. Truth had become greater than love. Sound doctrine had become greater than love. And the problem is that if you lose love, you lose it all. If love is what you lose, you will lose it all in terms of your following Jesus. It's like me saying to Joy someday, right? Don't worry, 
I won't leave you. And I never would. I'll provide for you. I'll still be here. I'll persevere. I'll work hard. I'll show up. Even if things are hard, I'll work harder. I won't leave. But the problem is I just don't love you anymore. No relationship can live there, can it? Nothing lives there. And how often is it in our lives and in the church that we follow Jesus that way, however? Where habit becomes greater than love. Where truth becomes greater than love. Where sound doctrine becomes greater than love. Where we care about that stuff more than we care about how passionately we love and are all in for him. Like we've always done it that way. Or I feel bad if I'm not part of a church. Or I've got friends there. Or so on and so on and so on. And even when I think of myself today, right? Like I do this, I, I work for church, I give myself, I try to serve and spend it for all of you and for, and for this, this idea of central, this vision that we had, right? Do I do that because it's just my job, because I'm on the payroll, because of an obligation to you all or some sense of duty, right? As one of the people that helped plant this church. Is that why I do this? Or do I do it because it's the overflow and the outworking of the love that I have for Jesus? And it reminds me of a passage in the book of Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 2, he will write this. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not yet sown. I remember the devotion of your youth. Do you remember yours? question is today, do you remember yours? Maybe in a faith sense, you're in it right now. You've, you've come to faith recently or for whatever reason, your faith has become reinvigorated and you're in the devotion of your youth, moment of your faith. You're willing to do anything, go anywhere. You're all in. But maybe like me, the devotion of your youth was quite literally quite a long time ago. We're YF, right? Insert your youth group name here. Ours was SNT, Sunday night thing, right? Really creative. I mean, we could do a whole series on youth group names. Ministry would need to be available after that because there will be some shockers in the room, right? You went to Summer Madness. You did Manifest. You did youth teams. You went away to foreign countries and did all sorts of short-term mission. Maybe you even did long-term mission. Things we did, places we went, people we served, weird places, weird people, uncomfortable scenarios, things that looking at them now, you're like, I would never do that now. But you did it then. Looking at the devotion of your youth, how all in you were. How real present and uncluttered your faith in Jesus was. What happened? What happened? Jeremiah goes on. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? And this is it, right? This is the crux of it. They'd elevated habit, they'd elevated truth, they'd elevated doctrine over their love for Jesus. And at the crux of it is what Jeremiah is saying. It's like the Lord says to Ephesus, the way he spoke to Jeremiah, the way he speaks to us now, what happened? 
How did I wrong you? How did you look at me? What fault did you find in me that you decided to walk so very far away from me? What happened there? Let's be honest, we don't really just leave or let go of love. And life, most of the time, is transferred. So the question is, what's got your heart? What's got your heart now the way Jesus used to have your heart? What's got it? Work, money, that guy or girl, status, whatever. I don't know what it is. What has got your heart? Or maybe if we're honest, it was something else, right? Disappointment. Your relationship with Jesus didn't work out the way you thought it was. Some part of you feels in your heart, you didn't come through for me, God. I did everything. I prayed constantly. I showed up. Where were you? I get that so much of Revelation is big picture, kind of out there type stuff. But zooming in right now, taking a look at your life as it's being lived with habit over love, if it is being really personal, what happened? What happened? You need to ask yourself that question today. Because Jesus says, love is the only way to live. And finally, he tells the Ephesian church how to return. This is about knowing This is about a church for whom habit had become greater than love. And finally, this was about a return. Ephesus was not just uh, an incredible place, right? Ephesus was also a deeply significant place. If traditions are to be believed, John would later serve as bishop there for many years. Paul had evangelized it and then used it as the base of operations for at least three years. We know that from Acts 18 and 19. Timothy labored there. Ephesus was definitely the first recipient of four New Testament books, right? Ephesians 1 and 2, Timothy and Revelation, and possibly four more. John's Gospel and his three epistles. Paul also wrote 1 Corinthians in Ephesus. It was a deeply significant place for the New Testament church and for all believers. And the church there was characterized by both zeal and love, right? If it had two kind of features, that church, it was a place of real zeal and real love. Eugene Peterson translates Ephesus 1.15 like this. That's why when I heard of the solid trust you have in the master Jesus and your outpouring of love to all the followers of Jesus, zeal and love. It was a church of zeal and love. And it's clear from our passage today that they still had the zeal bit, right? They still persevered. They still endured. They still worked hard. They were still that sort of church, right? They held on to zeal. But the love had gone out. In some ways you could say, well, one out of two ain't bad, right? We're still at least one of those things. Here's the problem, though. There is no longer any trace of a living church in Ephesus. There is no longer any trace of a church in Ephesus. It's gone. So significant, and yet now it's gone. That's what happens when love grows cold. You see, the thing is for individuals, right, as followers of Jesus, for people who have given our lives to him, we have in some senses the eternal security of our relationship with him, don't we? We know that no matter what happens, we're solid, right? We're, we're okay. We will be with him eventually. But that is not the case for a church. This is a warning to the future church and to us today that we could be any number of things here. We could be dynamic, thriving, full to the rafters, enduring, persevering. We could even be a significant church to the city center of Belfast. But 
if the love grows cold, we will die. The future church depends on love. So how do we get it back? And how do we keep it? Well, John tells the church how they might return to that love, that first love, the love that motivated them at the start. And he says three things about how they might do it. This is verse five. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Here are these three things. The first is remember. Remember. You can't do the things if you first don't remember. He tells them that if they want to get back to that love, the first thing they have to do is remember. Actually, John writes uh, the same as the prophet Jeremiah from that Jeremiah 2 reading that we said. If you read on from that into verses 6 and 7 and onwards, the very thing that he will say is that they need to remember. And we need to remember. To remember how we used to feel about him. I was poking through uh, books a number of days ago in the office while I was looking for some things, and I found some notes that I wrote on an old Bible from a youth team, right? Cringe 5,000, right? (laughs) Horrific. I'm never reading it out, right? Part of me thought, I'm going to read this out, and then I thought, no, because I can never come back from that if I did, right? So cringe, right? But here's the thing at the same time. The moment I read it, once I got over myself, The sense of longing and expectation and how uncomplicated my love for Jesus was then. And I need to remember that now. The first thing he says is remember. The second thing he says is repent. Repent. And the word repent, it comes from the Greek word. It's a compound word, metanoia. And actually that word literally means after mind. That's what those two parts mean, okay? After mind, like after thought. In other words, it means a change of mind. If faith, as we talk about it in a New Testament sense, is all about allegiance, right? That's what faith is about. It's about a change of heart. Then repentance is about a change of mind. And really it means to think differently about yourself, about sin, and about Jesus. John says you need to remember. The second thing he says, you need to repent. We need a change of mind from the things that have our attention and lead our thought life and our decision-making process to the way we thought about him at the start. We need to remember, we need to repent, and thirdly, we need to return. And we need to return to the love that motivated us at the start. Here's the thing. We have this tendency in the church to split faith and works quite often, don't we? We, we don't really like those two things being together. We read that passage about faith and works and all of that sort of stuff. And so we, we split them quite a bit. And yet John himself will write in 1 John 5, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. You see, it turns out that love and works categorically belong together. And so one of the ways that we regain the love of our, regain the love of our following the Lord is that first love means first works, right? In other words, what did you do at the start when you loved him the way you did at the start? What did you do when you first followed him? To get the love that you had very often means we need to do the works that we did. Joy uh, loved to run this phrase off quite early in our marriage. She didn't actually mean it right. I should say Joy is really definitely not a high-maintenance person, right? But she would say very often early, early doors in our marriage, Dave, what it took to get me, it takes to keep me, right? 
Everyone's like, yes, queen, right? That's what she would say, right? Because, like, you know, the sorts of things you did when you were dating, right? Really extravagant dates and all this stuff. And then you get married and you're like, oh, it's Friday night. We'll just order Chinese, right? That's kind of what happens when you get married. And she would say these sorts of things as, like, a, you know, a motivation for the fact that, like, you've lost all ambition for what this relationship might look like. And in some ways, that's exactly it. That's exactly what it takes. What it took to get it, it takes to keep it. How we lived and served when Jesus got a hold of our lives, we need to give ourselves to once more. And for the Ephesian church, just so you know what that looked like, it looked like hospitality. It was hospitality that had a hold of the Ephesian church. And that's what the call was to return to. And he writes, says this, love in the early Christian sense is something you do. Giving hospitality and practical help to those in need, particularly to other Christians who are poor, sick, or hungry. That was the chief mark of the early church and no other non-ethnic group had ever behaved like this. In other words, John is telling them, get back to hospitality. When he says, do the things you did at the start, do the things you used to do, he's saying, be a hospitable place again. It was the expression and it was the advertisement of their faith in Jesus. I was doing a session for Helen in the Belfast Bible College um, uh, a number of weeks ago and somebody asked a very astute question about you know the church coming out of coronavirus and the moment we live in and you know what are maybe some of the things we could do as a church and you know it, it occurred to me as I thought about it that day as I think about it now that the primary way I think we can be the church in 2022 is to be hospitable to be a people of radical hospitality. You know, hospitality in the New Testament sense too didn't just mean dinner with your best mates, right? That wasn't hospitality. That's just dinner with your best mates. Hospitality in the New Testament sense was the stranger. It was the outsider. It was the broken. It was the lonely. That's what hospitality meant. And I still think today that that might be one of the primary expressions of the church that we need to be and need to become to become the future church as a transformed people to be a transforming people I think the Lord might be calling us back to hospitality this is a letter to the church in Ephesus but it's written for us now here as we sit today the future church as we look to be a church with a future and as we sit today the first thing I would hope and I would pray is that we may know his knowing we might experience it. We might know it deep in our bones and in our soul. That we are seen. That we're really seen. That this might be the only place in the world that you are really seen. But you are. That as we see beneath what we're projecting and what we're comfortable with others seeing, we are seen. That the Lord might see us and know us. Failures and all. But secondly, that we might know today that love is the only way to live. That though the church in Ephesus had been a church where habit was greater than love, might we be a people for whom love is greater than habit? For whom we are all out, for whom we are all in, for whom we might get back to the love that motivated us at the start. What happened if love has grown cold in you? What happened? And might we return? May we know how to remember, may we know how to repent. 
and may we know how to return to the love that captured us at the start.